You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black, that is okay. In the background, those are the cicadas. We are in the middle of summer here in Nanjing, and we are finishing up Distributed Blackness by Andre Brock Jr., the last chapter today, Making a Way Out of No Way, Black Cyberculture and the Black Technocultural Matrix. If you have not read the book, you should read the book. If you've read the book and would like to, you know, chat with a friend about it, uh, by which I mean listen to me chat, you can go back and listen to the first um, three episodes. I did an introduction episode with the first chapter, then I did the second chapter standalone, and then, uh, no, excuse me, I did introduction the first chapter, then I did the second and third chapters together, then the fourth and fifth chapters together, and now the last chapter today. And we're going to try to make this one shorter. Last week was the longest podcast I ever did, 54 minutes, because there was so much to get to. This week, uh, let's try to keep it at 30. Okay, so let's hop in. If you have not listened at all and you just want a, a brief, brief summary of what this book is about, it is about black technoculture and cyberculture and about the idea of blackness as an informational identity and the concept of using blackness, distributing blackness to navigate um, networks which are dominated and created by uh, white patriarchal capitalistic society. So a good metaphor that Brock uses to open the book and which I've repeated now in each podcast is the green book is a piece of physical informational blackness that was used to navigate the network that is the U.S. highway system. I rather like that metaphor it's a, an, or analogy. Very good. So, okay. So this week, though, we are hopping into chapter six. Not going to summarize the previous five chapters. Neither is Brock. So, once again, the uh, name of this chapter is Making a Way Out of No Way, Black Cyberculture and the Black Technocultural Matrix. Brock says from the top, I offer this interrogation not as a summary of the previous chapters, just as I'm not offering you one but as a provocation for those who are interested in centering blackness as digital practice. So this book is going to be, uh, or excuse me, this book, this chapter is going to be the, the thing that allows you to go forward and talk about technoculture with blackness at its center. This is what this is going to be. So where the other chapters were discussing practices or discussing technological artifacts, this one is not. It's laying out a theory that allows you to go forward and use that framework to understand technoculture in your everyday life. So he intends to build out from technology as text, which is a concept he brought up in the introduction. He says he's going to go from technology as text, technology as thought, because text and thought are related, and then technology then as thought and racial identity. Into a and then build that into a concept of black technoculture. So he does that. And uh, the reason I'm not going to really address that part is because I think there's nothing wrong at all with this framework or theory. Not that I only address things that I think are wrong, but like I try to address things that I think are interesting in the book. And I just thought this framework and theory, I've ran into it a bunch uh, 
it, on this podcast when I was reading Emmanuel Ezi, I ran into it. And then in general, I like the work of the uh, American philosopher Daniel Dennett, who Ezi also referenced in his book. And they talk about consciousness and thought and writing and text. So there's nothing wrong with that concept at all to me. I guess the only critique, I would, it's not even a critique, the, the only place where I differ from Brock is not, is so is not in this concept, but in what the thought is, you know, throughout the book, he talks about blackness's heterogeneity, but then if you're being unfair, you would say reductive, but if you're being, you know, a little bit more generous, you might say he summarizes blackness in a way that I just kind of disagree with, but that was last podcast. So anyway, this framework in theory worked for me completely. I, I think it's a great concept the idea of technology as text and then because it's text it is also technology as racial identity and thought uh, I think is a concept that really makes sense okay so after he lays out that framework for how he's going to get to his eventual technocultural matrix for blackness for black digital practice he goes through a couple of scholars and he talks about their work and how their scholarship differs from his work so what he wants, to, the reason he's doing this is so that he can say, and a lot of people do this in a lot of academic texts, he wants to be able to point to things that people might say, well, what about this? What about that? Here is the thing that you might say, what about? And here's why my work is different. Okay. So he brings up for, I'll just do two. Well, I'll do one scholar and then one concept. And the concept I'm going to talk a little bit longer about. So the first person he brings up is Rayvon Fouché. I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. Hope that's correct. He's a scholar who developed a, an analysis called Black Vernacular Technological Creativity. And he's talking about the way black people use uh, technology, digital technology, how they exist in technoculture, where Brock is different. And this is what Brock points out. He focuses, Brock does, on the banal every day. So Fouché tended to focus on things that were being made by um, black creators in the techno-cultural space. And, you know, so art, artists, um, I guess coders, whoever's making things. And uh, Brock really wants to focus on the banal every day and what that means for blackness. Okay, so that's where he differs there. The more, perhaps, perhaps the more interesting, but the, yeah, perhaps the more interesting Thing that Brock addresses is Afrofuturism. Now he had he had addressed it earlier in the book in like the introduction. And by his own admission, his discussion of it in the introduction is very quick. And I think he even says glib. I think he, that's his word. Kind of a harsh word. But so yeah, I wanted to make sure it was his and not mine. But so he talks about it again here. And basically where his work differs from Afrofuturism is he quotes a scholar and points out that some Afrofuturists, I was going to say a lot, some Afrofuturists focus on progress and that can lead to black respectability, essentially. So I believe the the person he quotes is Morris, Susanna Morris. And he says, uh, Susanna Morris graciously allows for Afrofuturistic possibilities that are not moralizing or utopian. But her argument inevitably returns to progress as a feature of Afrofuturist epistemology. In this, Morris inadvertently 
privileges the desires of black respectability proponents, in this case through futurist artworks and artists, that position is not compatible with the aims of this book. So, I will get to a discussion about progress and respectability again. <laughs> There's a long discussion of it last week, but I'll get to a, a, a talk of it again. But I just want to say that Brock at least points out that's not the aims of this book. So, you know, that's that's admirable that it's like not saying that it's necessarily wrong. It's just not the aims of the book. But, you know, I don't like that concept. But I, I'm going to I'm going to put that on the back burner for a second and move on to the next thing Brock says, which is at the exact end of this Afrofuturism Section. He says, uh, thus, this text's interest in the banality of black Twitter and other spaces where ratchet digital practice is enacted reinvests futurity into present uses of the digital rather than impossible black cyborg or black magical futures. In other words, blackness is neither post human nor interested in being so. I guess now's as good a time as I need to go ahead and talk about this. I really don't like this concept whatsoever, and I think it's confusing to talk about the heter heterogeneity of blackness and then just say blackness is neither post-human nor interested in being so, full stop. Now, I get it. He's presenting a thesis and trying to prove it. At the same time, I just don't understand why we have to dismiss a good segment of people in the black community it's not nobody who's into afrofuturism afrofuturistic aesthetics and he names you know sun Ra, cool keith i don't know if he names del del uh, delta funky homo sapien but deltron he names these groups and stuff uh, and uh musicians and then just kind of dismisses them in a way you know at the end here where, oh yeah, that's just not what blackness is. And and mainly because, not because like they're not black enough or something like that. It's not what Brock is saying. But mainly because they're focused on this post-human ideal or they're focused on progress or they're focused on utopia. And so I guess for him that doesn't jibe with the blackness he's defining in the book, which is the banal everyday blackness, which he wants to discuss at the same time i wish he wouldn't have said that it's just not blackness i don't think he meant it in the way that i'm necessarily presenting it i just don't like that sentence how about that i can at least say i don't like that sentence but i, I don't think that brock had ill intentions in writing that there's also a section in this afro afrofuturism part where he talks about how a lot of it is focused on literary and artistic objects he says though these are durable artifacts these are primarily for like high culture activities. So he says, uh, the Afrofuturism warrant a technocultural respectability premised primarily upon the high culture activities of surrealist artists and the politically resistive. High culture activities. You know, I thought that was really unfair for, you know, the, the people he's talking about. It, it's all right. If you want to say like Octavio Butler, and Sun Ra, like jazz and uh, literature, or high culture activities. I mean, I guess when Sun Ra was doing jazz, it's almost into the 70s. So, yeah, it wasn't stigmatized like it had been. 
sci-fi is stigmatized now. Certainly when Octavia Butler was doing it, it wasn't high culture. Like sci-fi literature was not high culture. And beyond that, he names Cool Keith. This, I mean, there's no world in which Cool Keith is high culture activities. Hip-hop, until like the last 10 years, and even then maybe. I, I'll give it the last 10 years. You have like Nas at the... Uh, was he at the Met? Where did he perform? The Philharmonic? Okay, so hip-hop's arrived. But, like, during my whole childhood, it hadn't. And certainly during Cool Keith's, you know, um, Dr. Octagon phase. And uh, what was the name of... He's got another... He's got so many ridiculous albums. But that's not high culture activities. So I guess if you're saying surrealism is high culture, but, like... I, I don't know. So I thought that I thought their aspects of the critique were unfair. That being said, he says his critique of Afrofuturism might be unfair. So he's aware. Uh, but I thought that like, I thought mainly with Afrofuturism, he just wanted to, pre- and I think mainly with Brock's book, what he's trying to do is present a different face of blackness in technoculture rather than present the face of blackness in technoculture. But in doing that, and maybe it's just because, you know, by making the argument, by pushing it so much further than it actually warrants to go, he's hoping to at least win it the little bit of attention it should have and the seriousness and scholarship that uh, it should be getting. And it's not getting any. So I think that he's pushing Afrofuturism to the side and pushing everything else to the side and emphasizing blackness, this specific type of blackness that he's defining for the purposes of if I do that, people actually pay attention to it. And then, you know, because it's been underpaid attention to by overpaying attention to it, I'm tipping the scales in the correct way. So I reckon that's what he's doing. He says as much later on in the book and we'll get to it. I think that you can probably tell I really like Afrofuturism, you know, uh, as a dorky black kid who, uh, reads a lot and read a lot and listens to a lot of hip hop music. I was, very happy to uh, listen to Cool Keith, mainly just Dr. Octagon. Deltron 3030 was great. And uh, anything else that we could get, you know, our hands. MF Doom feels sci-fi-ish, but I don't know. And then, yeah, Octavio Butler and I got older and stuff was awesome. So, and I say when I got older, not because I didn't like her when I was younger. Didn't know she existed. Didn't even know there were black sci-fi writers. So, yeah, you know, I still haven't read Samuel Delaney because I didn't find out about him until I was 30. So like, I don't know, it, parts of this, parts of the, and I know that he's centering something that hasn't been centered before and that's important, but parts of the book for people who are in the black community and uh, also like not from like some high culture background can feel dismissive of, the book can feel dismissive of those people. That's that section where he points out where his concepts are going to be different. And then we get to the meat of the uh, sixth chapter and uh, the final section in which he busts out his technocultural matrix. Now, if you remember last week, if you listened, I was saying that I didn't like the, you know, we all have to confront the Du Bois monolith or mountain or... um, I don't know what you would call it, obstacle course, whatever. We all have to confront it, this idea of double consciousness. And Brock had to find kind of a new uh, double consciousness where 
you have in-group and out-group tensions. And another way that you could perhaps think of it as ratchetry and respectability. And I was saying that, and I, Brock didn't say that explicitly in his definition, but I, I feel like those nodes are are there. Ratchetry uh, being the in-group thing and respectability being the out-group thing, which I had my problems with talk about that last week. But I said, I, I wish that he had employed a matrix because I feel like the problem with Du Bois in 2022, besides some of his respectability stuff, is that the double consciousness thing is not uh, all-encompassing. Like it doesn't encapsulate what it is to be alive at this time with the amount of information flying through our heads. So it's more like a matrix. So then I was, and maybe I should start previewing chapters before I do each chapter in a book, but I was very happy to find out that there was a matrix featured in this chapter. So I'm just going to go through the matrix. He lays out a matrix by a different scholar who he admires. I'm going to go through that matrix very quickly and then I'm going to go through Brock's and then, you know, we'll be done. But so he begins uh, to construct his matrix laying out a groundwork by referring to Joel Dienerstein. Dinerstein, okay, uh, who says technology is the American mythos. Now, before I go any further, I have to say that I absolutely love this quote. I tried to get a hold of the essay that Dinerstein wrote, but I could. It was only available on Jay's store and blah blah blah. I'm not an academic, but um, I absolutely love this quote. It put me in the mind of Blood Meridian, which is one of my all-time favorite books. And the idea of, uh, and also my, one of my favorite classes that I took during university was the Western and the concept of spreading technology across the American West and wrangling the land. Obviously, some people see it as romantic. Some people see it as tragic. Some people see it as a mix of all three. Or two, there's only two things there. Uh, two. And then you could also extend it out to all the other places that the uh, Europeans colonized. So... Technology is the American mythos is a very interesting idea for those two reasons. And the third reason, because for a country that's only 200 years old, it's hard to have a mythology. You know, there's that great part in Catch-22 where the Italian is talking to the American about how the Americans don't have like an identity yet. But the Italians, you know, they lose, but they never die. Like Rome lost, but it's still alive. And he goes through this whole thing. And, you know, I live in China and whatever it's China has its mythos, whether or not it's accurate about the 5,000 years of history, it doesn't matter. They, they have it, it's there. And so there's always that question of what is going to be the American mythos. It's still being, you know, constructed. The myth is still being constructed and the concept of technology being it. I just really, really like that concept. So shout out to Joel Dinerstein and uh, Brock shouts him out. He really likes him, says that he talks about him at every talk he gives. And here are the six elements the Dienerstein says, compose Western technoculture. Whiteness, masculinity, religion, progress, modernity, and the future. And I'm not even going to talk about them. You can go read. I'm going to eventually get that essay by Dienerstein and read it. So I will read that. Uh, Brock has a discussion of it. It's not necessary to understand it. I would say the most important thing Brock says about it is that he wants to add anti-blackness as the seventh node of the matrix, because this allows for libidinal tensions powering chattel slavery and racial capitalism to be clearly understood as technocultural artifacts and ideological mainstays, rather than as the supposedly repellent activities of individuals. 
that put me in the mind of Cedric Robinson and how he, in the Black Marxism book, lays out the concept of global capitalism growing out of racism. Anti-blackness is fine. Racism would also work. But for global capitalism, I think it has to be anti-blackness. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought that was a good addition to the Matrix. But then Brock wants to write his own Matrix. And he's writing his own Matrix not to supplant Diner Scene's Matrix, which he thinks is solid for Western technoculture. But he wants to write a Matrix for black technoculture that centers blackness as a, at the center of digital practice, which is how it is never thought of. So that was his goal. So here is Brock's matrix also with six nodes and we'll go through some of them and some of them we'll skip so they are blackness intersectionality america invention style modernity and the future all right blackness uh, we've talked about enough especially brock's definition of it intersectionality interesting uh, concept if you don't know it but i think at this point it, everybody does What's interesting to know about it is that its original intention was to describe black women and not to uh, describe uh, just everything. Like I've used it on this podcast to describe being black and poor, and that wasn't the, the original conception. But, you know, it's a great concept, so great concepts get used, right? Same thing with double consciousness, like it's been used by plenty of people in other other uh, fields besides, you know, black studies or African-American studies or whatever. So there you go. Okay. The third note of the matrix, America, is interesting. I have a little quote here. He says, there is, oh, okay. So he's talking about how, because, you know, anytime you put in America there, you're going to have to justify, you know, what does America mean to the black person, uh, to paraphrase Frederick Douglass, you know, what does it mean to the black person? What does it mean? So he goes through and creates a justification for it. I, I personally think that America wouldn't, I mean, I think a lot of black people feel this way, but maybe they don't feel this way in like a, in any kind of way that would be thought of as prideful, but like America wouldn't exist without black people. But most of, most of the time when black people say something like that, they mean like, you know, we built this thing. Uh, but I mean, like it's everything about it is black. Like it's all, there's so much of the culture is, is black and not just like, you know, the immediate thing people are going to think of is like music and sports, right? The things that they always think, but like, no, like the, the whole way of being American, you know, is dripping with blackness. It's also dripping with whiteness too. I mean, there's plenty of people walking around who haven't had a touch of blackness in their life, but it's uh it's also dripping with blackness. And, um, I can't conceive of America without it, I guess is the concept. And also, Blackness is, if you think of it in the way of Cedric Robinson, blackness is the corrective that even allows America to be a somewhat decent place to live. Not saying that that should be blackness's role, and that's partially what Brock is arguing against, but American blackness has that aspect to it, and this book is about American blackness. But anyway, uh, in part of the this little section here, he talks about technology and he says i'm just going to read the quote and then talk about it there is however enough evidence globally that simply investing black resources in western technology often leads to rack and ruin uh, returning to Baraka's thoughts about how blackness would inform technology design and use i argue that technology in black techno culture 
is not an extension of control over the world, but rather an affordance for social joy and inventive creativity. So this gets back to the whole tension I have with the progress thing. And uh, yeah, I just 100% completely disagree with this concept. It makes it sound like, I mean, okay, so I argue that technology and black technoculture is not an extension of control over the world. If specifically what you're talking about is digital practice, which Brock says he is talking about, that's fine. But the above thing leads me to believe that he's not when he says, there is, however, enough evidence globally that simply investing black resources in Western technologies, that's way more broad. And that's just not true. Like there's, that makes it sound like there weren't, it makes it sound like two things. One, it makes it sound like the West and blackness are not the same thing. They are the same thing. If the, because if you're going to talk about the world as a dichotomy and it's the West and then the East, then you've got to include Africa as part of the West. It's certainly not part of the East. Now, you might just say it's dumb to talk about the world in the dichotomy. The entire concept of the West is stupid. That's fine, but we're using it. And if we're using it, you'd have to say that Africa is part of the West because historically, a lot of what happened in Africa mattered to the West, including passing its civilization on up into the West and affecting the West. Like, if the... Egyptians are the reason or, you know, the basis of Western civilization, right? Like not 100% the basis, but certainly an influence, a big, big, big influence on Western civilization. Then that has to be acknowledged because the Egyptians are African. And even if you want to be one of those people who says North Africa is different, the Sudan, the ancient kingdom, kingdom of Nubia, which is located in the Sudan, is black Africa. The point is, is that black Africa is intertwined with the West. The point is, is that there were technologies in Africa that were spread on the continent, forget spread up into Europe, just spread on the continent that made the lives of people on the continent better. That technology has improved lives without Western influences. Like the, the concept of the Bantu expansion and, and spreading agriculture from West Africa down south throughout the continent. That's progress. That's using technology to control the world. And so the idea that that's like, that, 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 you know, that concept works, but if it's Western technologies, it doesn't work. It leads to rack and ruin. I just, I don't think that that's an accurate statement. I think that like the reason, you know, the reason that when you, when you see uh, technologies in Africa leading to rack and ruin, the reason is not because um, it doesn't jive with black technocultural practice. The reason is because the way global capitalism is set up it's very hard for a not developing country, but a third world country with no infrastructure to just simply get some technologies and simply jump up to the level, you know? And we're seeing that now with what China's doing in a lot of African countries where they're putting a ton of investment into infrastructure. It's still not just simply like, oh, okay, you got some stuff for, and now everybody's a second world country. And now your GDP's jumped up, you know, times 25 there's the system is set up to exploit so it's not like the technocultural practices don't jive it's more like the capitalistic impulses of the nations that are quote-unquote helping or investing in or going to africa or going into black places going into black communities it's more like they're predatory not that black people's relationship to technology is and affordance for social joy and inventive creativity. 
how about it's both? What about that concept? So anyway, didn't like that, as you can tell. And then <laughs> the, the fourth uh, node of the Matrix was invention and style. And he quotes Derek Walcott here. I'm quoting Derek Walcott, not because I have any argument with it, but because it is perhaps the greatest definition of style that I've ever read. Brock says, as, uh, says the same. Walcott says, style is to inhabit so completely the space one does have and to habit and to inhabit it so individually that one does not need to go outward toward the quarter of time to discover possibility. One does not need to go outward toward the quarter corridor of time to discover possibility. For one has found it in one's own depths. Fantastic. Gives me chills just reading it. I would say the closest thing I've read to that that I really liked, John Waters wrote a, a book called Role Models. And at the beginning of it, I believe he's talking about Johnny Mathis. And uh, a similar concept is espoused in those pages. It's not written with that kind of panache that Walcott writes with right there. But um, yeah. And then, okay. The fifth mode or node, excuse me, the fifth node was uh, modernity. And there's just one sentence here. And it's, it's, it's just a throwaway sentence here. But again, uh, I don't like it. And Brock says, uh, unfortunately for blackness, there is no escaping modernity. And again, I mean, whatever. I don't want to go into the whole Bantu expansion thing again or whatever, but like, you know, there never was an escape of modernity. And there isn't this, there seems to be this idea, and this goes back into his respectability thing and progress thing, that that the, that the, the type of, you know, the type of modernity that was happening in Africa, I guess, is different than the type of modernity that was happening in Europe. And I, I just don't think that's true. So, uh, maybe I'm being a determinist about it. You know what they call that geographic determinism. I really like that book by, uh, Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel, because I always wondered, you know, if we were writing alternative histories, what would happen if the colonizers didn't show up, et cetera. I always wondered like, what would it have taken for technologies to, you know, develop like they did in Europe. Like, what what would it have taken? And so I like Guns, Germs, and Steels because it talks about the available things that you could possibly develop technologies with. And living in a place like Asia, it's interesting because they had some technologies. They're on the same land mass, largely, as Europe. So they had a lot of the resources and they developed some things and some things they didn't. And Africa had less of the resources, certain resources, plenty of other resources, giant land mass, but a little bit harder to navigate. I'm still in a lot from guns, germs, and still here. But even then, it still had its modernity and we and uh, had its great societies and had great technological feats, had great artistic feats, had farming, had writing systems, had all of these things. So unfortunately for blackness, there's no escape. Modernity seems odd to me. And it also seems to imply this thing, and I think this comes up a lot, where there's this concept that kind of ignores human nature. Like, it seems to suggest that if blackness had Africa, let's say, any African country, but let's just pick a West African one because that's my lineage, so, you know, according to 23andMe. So let's say Nigeria, which is not the country I my lineage apparently is from because there wasn't a country. If Nigeria would have progressed to the point of like any of the colonizing countries, uh, would they have colonized? And there seems to be this idea that they wouldn't have, but like 
But of course they would have, because they did. Everybody colonized on their own land masses. Now, that doesn't excuse away what global capitalism did and the harshness of European colonialism. Like, it's destroyed. I mean, capitalism literally destroying the world. And European colonialism is the... Uh, is the tool that made that forward. It's just a big churning machine that went into every place they could with brown and black people and turned everything into shit and has kept it going for a couple hundred years. So no one's excusing any of that away. But there is a concept of human nature to this stuff. And then the last note is the future. And um, I have no notes for the future. All right, so we're over 30 minutes, but, you know, not too much over. So just to sum up, the book has a coda, and Brock talks about how he wanted to do a book on black American com culture without comparing it to other diaspora cultures or to whiteness. So, you know, last week, perhaps, when I was criticizing the fact that, like, the book didn't take into account some of these aspects that other cultures also participate in, Perhaps that was an unfair criticism, but what I meant was is that in focusing on black American culture, I thought he would have tried to focus a bit more on things that were 100% specific to black American culture. And I thought that, you know, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that to do that effectively, more effectively, could have compared contrasted, but he didn't want to compare and contrast. So perhaps those critiques last week were unfair. So, you know, it's possible. And then he ends the book with this last sentence here. He says, if nothing else, the coders and engineers of Silicon Valley could be disabused of the notion that they are creating applications and software for everyone rather than for themselves. I won't hold my breath for that. However, I thought this was interesting just because at the end of it, then, if you're disabusing these people of this notion that they're creating, you know, software for us. I suppose that what you would want is people who are creating software for us. And presumably, I, I would assume that you would want those people to be us. And in order for those people to be us, they've got to study how to do those things. Which requires learning STEM, coding, etc., and that's starting to venture into progress, which is something that, you know, at the very least seems to be at some kind of tension with Brock's philosophy here. So I don't know, you know, for me, it's weird. I'm obviously I'm a math teacher and I've always been good at math, uh, luckily. Just, you know, just luck, really. I've always coded. I took coding in high school. and I, That's truly luck that I went to a high school that I could afford me the ability to take coding classes. So I took basic, visual, basic, C++, all in high school. That was cool. And I took it at university and I, I still code today. Poorly, but I still code. Um, so I've always done those things. And I've dreamed of offering, like... Khan Academy type thing, but for black kids and for, and having STEM initiatives and doing that. And I think it's good. I think that you could like, you could offer those things as a way 
to, you know, encourage economic mobility. Okay, fine. But if you don't want to focus on progress, you could also just offer those things and to encourage people to like learn, which is its own kind of progress. But like, I've long been trying to argue as a math educator that like we should focus, you know, because one of the things you always say to people when you're teaching math, I'm sure everybody who's listening has heard this is like, oh, use math in every job, use math in every job. And it's just such a lie. Like even the people now who are using, you know, social scientists who are doing like data science stuff, oh, they use math in every job. They plug some numbers into the computer. They don't understand the algorithm. They don't understand the math. I can say as a math major, like there's a lot of tons, so much math that like, and again, math major, not a mathematician, just somebody who majored in math. Uh, there's so much math I don't understand that like, you know, regular people, non-math people just kind of using math as a byline. They don't understand the math. And then there's so many jobs that don't require math whatsoever. Basic understanding of logic, you're good. So I feel like the way we should be marketing math is, you know, one, sure, you can get a job, but two, like you can just expand your mind. You know, it's good exercise for your mind. It's not unlike music. It's stimulating in that way. It's its own language. Like those approaches to math are also good. So reading this book, I had some issues with the concepts of progress and respectability and like appropriate internet practices and how that's bad and stuff like that. And I, because I just thought like, what's so horrible or, and if there is not that there aren't horrible ways to talk about appropriateness and respectability, but like the concept that those things are all anti-black. I just didn't like that. Like there is not, that just can't be true. Like would it have been anti-black a hundred years ago to want to teach your kid to like play the trumpet, you know, because you just thought like, Hey, this is cool. Like music. That's like a nice thing for you to do a good outlet for you as a person here, go play music. I really view like coding as that same thing. And uh, just giving, you know, or STEM in general or whatever, education or learning. I, I think that just like encouraging people to put their, you know, time to use, not necessarily to economic or capitalistic use, but use something that makes you feel like you're progressing. And I'm going to use that word. Something that makes you feel like you're progressing, but not necessarily towards the goal of know, making somebody else richer yourself or whichever corporation you work for. I don't think that that's a negative thing. So I guess my ultimate critique of the book is respectability was not nuanced enough. I get that the book didn't want to like talk about whiteness or others in the black diaspora, but like, I thought it should have really done a better job of pointing out appropriateness and respectability and these practices when they are from the in-group and not just imposed by the out-group. Maybe I'm misguided. Maybe those things are impossible. Maybe they're always imposed by the out-group. Uh, perhaps that would be Brock's contention. But didn't work for me. That's Distributed Blackness. That's a hell of a book, folks. Four podcasts, a lot of chatter on my end. I'm done. It is... July 28th, I've done an episode every week. I'm taking a week off going to Qingdao. You might know it as those little green bottles of beer that uh, say, you know, like Tsingtao on them, T-S-I-N-G-T-A-O, using the old, uh, I think it's Wade Giles pinion. Uh, we now pronounce it as Qingdao, which is a beach town 
anyway, going there. And so I won't have a podcast next week, but I'll be back in two weeks with the podcast about um, Zimbabwe, which I'm doing some data science stuff on. So there's a tie in with this book with the coding and distributed blackness and everything. So so I'll be doing a book by uh, called A History of Zimbabwe by Professor Alois Malambo. And I've already read part of it. So, yeah, I'll be I'll be there in two weeks. Please subscribe rate review i never say that but i should start saying it subscribe rate review if you want to listen if you want to check out the music on either end of this podcast go to the links in the show notes that's by the keep running my writings including some data science stuff are in the show notes uh so you can check that out and yeah that should do it um until next time stay safe stay black That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>